Well, our topic is sex and temptation. And it's a topic that will be deeply personal for each one of us here this evening. It's a, it's a topic that touches on our deepest longings, uh, a topic that may recall for us joyful memories or perhaps despairing memories or the deepest of guilts. Well, we've seen so far in the series that God is the one who has created sex. He's created marriage to be a lifelong union between a man and a woman uh, with total vulnerability, naked but not ashamed. And we've seen that God has created this, uh, created sex to strengthen this one flesh union within the marriage. And in that context to produce children who will be brought up in the loving care of, of a new home. And so we've seen that sex is for marriage. And that's because marriage is for children. But we've also seen that sex is not just for the act of, of procreation but as a source of joy and delight that will unite a husband and wife in love. It is actually a beautiful picture of sex that we have seen. Uh, it's so wonderful, actually, that the Bible uh, dedicates a whole book uh, to celebrating the sexual love within marriage, the Song of Solomon. Uh, God made sex. God is not anti-sex. He made it. He knows that it's good. He knows the only fulfilling and truly delightful place for it is within the safe confines of marriage. And for many uh, cultures where, where Christianity has spread, this understanding of, of, of sex and marriage has been woven into the cultures in which we live in ways that we don't even realize. But over the last hundred years or so, the world has seen an extraordinary revolution in attitudes to sex, especially in the West. Uh, it be began with the advent of conception, which meant that uh, people could more easily have sex without having children. Uh, and so uh, there were many uh, questions in the first talk, I remember, about whether a godly uh, couple should have children or not. And uh, we don't realize, but that's actually a very modern question to ask, because it's only the advent of contraception that even allows you to ask such a question. Until 50 years ago, if a couple was married uh, at the right age and they had sex, then of course they'd have children. That's just the way our bodies are. But with the advent of contraception, suddenly sex could be disassociated from children, and in time sex would be disassociated even from marriage itself. And so now we live in the world of sexual freedom, where country after country turns its back on Christianity and expresses that in liberal attitudes where anything goes in the area of sex. There's freedom, freedom to move in with your boyfriend before marriage, freedom to enjoy a one-night stand, freedom to have an affair on the side, you can download a, a, an app to help you, freedom to look at pornography, to fulfill whatever desires you have. And uh, of course, in many cases though, this, this, this freedom has not led to freedom, it's actually led to bondage. It's led to the degrading of women. It's led to the sexualization of television. It's led to the enslaving of women in the sex trade, the addictions of pornography, the pains of unfaithfulness. And suddenly we find in the world that we live in that what God has created to be so beautiful in marriage has become very ugly indeed. 
the world turns its back on God and suddenly it finds its desires twisted, destructive and enslaving. Well, that's our topic this evening, sex and temptation. And my aim is that we will see just how much our, our bodies matter to God and how God's design for sex is so much better than the, the cheap substitutes that we often settle for. And I want us to see that true sexual freedom is about living in accordance with God's design, not the, the dangerous and destructive path of sexual freedom. Well, let's begin in the positive territory with God's design for sex. And will you turn to, with me to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7 and verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning the matters to which you wrote. Uh, the Corinthian church have written Paul a letter, asking Paul various questions on, uh, on Christian living, including marriage. And you see in verse 1 that he begins by quoting from this letter they've written to him. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now it's, it's a quote that we saw last week that Paul would agree with in part. For provided that we can be self-controlled, singleness is better than marriage in providing the context for undivided devotion to the Lord. For some it is good to refrain from marriage and therefore to refrain from sexual relations. But notice Paul only agrees in part, verse 2. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Uh, so Paul sees here a, a very real temptation for sexual immorality for those who do not have a, a, a proper outlet for godly sex within a marriage. Now when he says each man should have his own husband or his wife, he doesn't mean that you should find one. Uh, you've already got one. He means it, it's a euphemism, right? Uh, he's saying sleeping together. And by sexual immorality here, Paul means any kind of sexual sim stimulation outside of a marriage, whether that be fornication, sex before marriage, or adultery, wrong sex to someone that you're not married to, or homosexuality, same sex, uh, or incest, sex with a close relative, or pedophilia, sex with a child, bestiality, sex with an animal, any of those things qualify under this, this big category, sexual immorality. And so to prevent this, this temptation to have wrong sex outside of marriage, Paul encourages here married couples to engage in sex. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And he goes on, verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Uh, conjugal rights means marriage rights. And again, he's talking about sex goes on, verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That might surprise us this evening just how pro-sex the Bible is, if you like. Uh, within marriage, the Bible sees sex as an essential ingredient that is to be desired and even to be commanded. 
sexual pleasure within a marriage is good, it is essential. We saw that in Proverbs chapter 5 on the screen. Uh, the writer says, Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. A husband and wife are meant to pursue the pleasures God has created for that relationship. Sex is good. But notice how countercultural this understanding of sex is, not only in the first century, but today. Remember the first century was a patriarchal society. There are all kinds of things there that women couldn't do. And notice that in the, in, in, even in the Bible's uh, uh, structure for marriage, the husband is the head and the woman is the helper. But notice here the wonderful mutuality between them. Uh, the husband's body belongs to the wife just as much as the wife's body belongs to the husband. Each has authority over the other. And he says that married couples must not deprive one another of each other's bodies. He's saying it's not about whether or not you're in the mood. Uh, or, you, you know, there'll be times you come home from work and uh, you're exhausted or you've been home the whole day with uh, looking after the children, doing the housework, and, and the last thing that you have on your mind is engaging in sex. But here, the Bible's view of sex is so revolutionary. Here, this view of sex, sex is not about me. Sex is not about fulfilling my desires or my needs. Sex is about serving the desires of my spouse, even with my body. And isn't this a wonderful design for sex? Her joy is found in giving pleasure to her husband. His joy is found in giving pleasure to his wife. That will be the best sex of all. It won't be boring. It'll be exciting. Certainly not the selfish and tainted sex that is all about me. Now notice Paul doesn't say here to couples that you need to claim your rights. You know, so you say, you know, Paul writes here, right? You must give your body to me. <laughs> he talks about giving yourself to the other person, not demanding that they give to you. And so husbands, if you want, uh, if it's your joy to bring her satisfaction, then you will be sensitive to what she needs and wants. And the wives here, if, it, if it's your joy to bring satisfaction to your husband, you'll be sensitive to what he needs and wants. I guess here's an encouragement for the married couples among us to keep working at your sex life. Now, if you're not married tonight, that must sound like a very bizarre thing uh, to say. I mean, I, I guess when you're single, you can't imagine that you would ever not want to engage in sex. But it is true. Intimacy in a marriage takes effort. The intimacy of sex takes a lot of effort because we are naturally sinful creatures who, who are consumed with ourselves and with our own desires and not about serving other people. And Paul really emphasizes the importance of this because to give up on a sexual relationship with your spouse is then to open up yourself and your spouse to all kinds of temptations to look elsewhere for the fulfillment of intimacy and love. I'm not saying the temptation is right, but the temptation is real. 
marriage research tells us that the, the problems in a marriage first show up in the bedroom. If you're failing to build intimacy in the marriage, if you're failing to resolve the conflicts, if you're failing to show steadfast love to one another, then the first place it will show up is the bedroom, because who will want to sleep with someone who's not loving you? And so if you are married and things are not going well in the bedroom, it's time to work on it before you grow apart as a couple, before the temptations become real. Spend time together. Clear out the schedule. It matters because sex is the superglue that keeps marriages together and sexual temptation is real. Well, that's point one, God's design for sex. And we come point two now then to the issue of sexual immorality. And the context we saw in chapter five is where there has been this gross case of sexual immorality in the church. A man has been sleeping with his stepmother, uh, sorry, his mother-in-law, uh, stepmother, and instead of disciplining him, the church is actually celebrating their relationship. And Paul writes to them in the strongest of terms, doesn't he? Just look back to chapter 5 and verse 9, what he says to them. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And so Paul expects the church to take drastic action against this case of sexual immorality or in, indeed any case of gross evil in the church. He expects them to break off fellowship with any person who is living hypocritically like this, denying their faith by their actions. Now, they're to take this action not in a spirit of arrogant judgmentalism, but motivated by love, showing the person the seriousness of their sin and the necessity that they repent. Well, that's the context, and now he turns to address the issue theologically in verses 12 to 20 of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 12. And in verses 12 to 14, he, had, he starts addressing the statements that they have made to justify their sexual freedom. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Uh, this is probably a quote from some people in the church who, who felt that they were above moral rules. Uh, perhaps the Old Testament, because the Old Testament law no longer applies to them anymore, they, they, they're saved by grace, then they can do whatever they want with their bodies. All things are lawful. And of course, Paul agrees in that sense. Christians are not under the Old Testament law, Christians are free. We're saved by grace, we're not saved by works, but he totally disagrees with them that that freedom means that we can live however we want. Paul gives two reasons. First reason, not all things are helpful. Not all helpful for me, not all helpful for others. We'll see a bit later, sexual sin is a sin against my own body, but it's also a sin against the Lord, it's a sin against my future spouse. It's a sin against the person that I've committed it with as well. 
And I think sometimes, with, with, uh, especially with sexual sin, we deceive ourselves into thinking that uh, no one will get hurt by it. You know, what does it hurt to look at a few pictures on the internet? No one will ever know. What does it matter to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend before we're married? Anyway, we love each other. No one will get hurt. And, and it's a deception. It's as old as sin itself. Thinking that sin has no consequences to it. Just as the Satan said to Eve, there won't be any consequences. You won't surely die. It'll be good. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Sin in its deception offers liberation. It offers happiness. But Paul reminds us that freedom doesn't mean freedom to be selfish. And freedom doesn't mean that there are no consequences to our actions. Perhaps we can zoom in on pornography for a moment. It's very easy to forget, isn't it, that the people on the screen are real people with real lives and that some of them have been enslaved and many of them are depressed and on drugs. Some have been sold into prostitution with awful consequences for their lives. We forget that pornography affects how we look at other people how we relate to other people. And we certainly forget the future consequences it will have when we have to finally tell our spouse or our future spouse of our habit and see them cry and see them feel betrayed. Indeed, it may end up costing us the relationship that we so desire. See, sin always has consequences to it. Consequences for ourselves, and consequences for others. Not all things are helpful. But Paul gives a second reason there in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And what he's saying is, look, sexual freedom is not real freedom. It actually turns out to be enslaving. And that is particularly the case for sexual sin, isn't it? Anyone who has ever struggled with, with pornography or premarital sex or perhaps even an affair will know that this is true. We get addicted. I think they're just having fun. Never mind. <laughs> don't think there's an issue. But we get addicted to sin, don't we? we? We say we're going to stop this time. We won't do it again, we tell ourselves. And then it happens again and again. Because the sin enslaves us. We can't say no. I will not be dominated by anything. Or they have a second justification in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. So evidently there's some people in the church who thought that their bodies had nothing to do with living a moral life. Uh, this classically comes from the Greek philosophy that would have been very prominent in Corinth at the time. It's probably related to, in chapter 15 where they deny the, the, the bodily resurrection at the end. They probably think our bodies don't matter. It's what's spiritual that matters, so what I do with my body, who cares? In a sense, Paul, of course, agrees with the statement, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But the problem is the application. Just because the body is created with a natural inclination towards sex doesn't mean that you can use your body however you like. Because as Paul reminds us, God will judge how you use your body. 
It says it there, God will destroy both one and the other. On judgment day, we'll have to give an account for our lives, including how we've used our bodies. The right way of seeing it is verse 14. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. See, the true purpose of our bodies is to bring glory to the Lord. That's the conclusion he'll get to in verse 20 when he says, glorify God with your body. True freedom, he's saying, is not to live however you want. That's in fact slavery because you're enslaved to your selfish desires which are harmful and addictive and actually end up destroying you. True freedom is about living how God has made us to live. It's about glorifying him with our bodies. And God's limitation of, of sex to marriage is not restrictive, it is liberating. Because God created our bodies to serve him. And God knows how we can honour him with sex in that covenantal uh, uh, commitment, in the loving confines of a marriage. Our bodies are not something that we can just toss away and be done with. It's not eat, drink, tomorrow we die. What we do with our bodies really matters. Our bodies will have a real future past the grave. As Jesus was raised, so we will be raised. And that means my body matters. What I do with my body is not a spiritual irrelevance. To live otherwise is pretty serious stuff. In fact, Paul will go on to say in a moment, it's like having spiritual prostitution. Well, in verses 15 to 20, Paul goes on to explain that Christians are united to Christ. We're actually part of his body. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now here we get an insight into the purpose of sex. You see, sex is not just a, a one-off act such that I can just go on a one-night stand and it won't have any ongoing consequences. We see here that sex is the glue that joins two people together as one flesh. And so God has so designed us as human beings such that when we sleep with someone else, we crave that intimacy again and again and again. And in marriage, that's perfect because it leads to an ever-deepening intimacy between the husband and the wife. But outside of marriage, it's terribly destructive. Just imagine I sleep with my boyfriend and girlfriend and then we break up. It will be worse than crushing because in a very real way, I've left part of myself behind with them. I won't be able to accept letting them go. In the realm of pornography, it becomes addictive and enslaving because God has created our hormones such that enough is never enough. We need to look again. We need to look again. We need to look again. And because we're designed for so much more than pleasuring ourselves with a few pictures, our craving is never satisfied. And so we need to watch pictures and then we watch videos and then we watch more graphic and more deviant things until the point where we start think, not just thinking about it but wanting to act it out with real people, whether our boyfriend or girlfriend 
or even a prostitute. And Paul says here, whenever I look at that picture or I sleep with that person I'm not married to, it's as if I'm taking Jesus to see the prostitute. Because in the end, God has designed sex, the physical union of two people, not just for procreation and not just for pleasure, but to be a picture of something greater, something even more wonderful, the spiritual union between Christ and his people. Look at verse 17. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Remember we saw in the first week, marriage is a picture of that ultimate union between Christ and the church. It's so intimate that the church can be described as his very body, Jesus the head, us the body. And sex is an amazing picture of that oneness and unity, the total acceptance and intimacy and trust between Jesus and his people. And so to be a Christian and to engage in sexual immorality is to take that beautiful picture of marriage and defile it. It's unthinkable. And so having undermined their justifications and their excuses, now he turns with the strongest of commands. Look at verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. He's saying, take drastic action. Don't play with it as, you know, don't play play, right? That's how you say it, right? Don't play play as if nothing is going to happen. Fire is good in the fireplace, but in the wrong place, you'll get burnt. We have examples of this all through Scripture. We've got Joseph and Potiphar's wife, you remember in Genesis 39. She moves on him to seduce him. He doesn't wait around to see what happens. He runs. Uh, in fact, he prefers to run out half naked uh, than to put himself in danger of sexual immorality. Or then there's the, the graphic warnings that we read in uh, Proverbs chapters 5 to 7. Uh, on the screen. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. And now, O oh sons, next slide, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Chapter 7, next slide. Now, sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. The Bible says, run. Run away. Sex is very good within marriage, but like anything, it will cause the greatest of harm if it is handled wrongly. The internet, atomic fusion, knives, they're all good things, aren't they? But in the wrong place, very destructive indeed. And so Paul is saying, if you're not married, don't play with the fire of sexual immorality. You will get hurt. Don't watch the R-rated movies. Don't look at pornography. 
If you are, take drastic action. Tell your brother or sister. Install covenant eyes. Read a book about it. A great one is called Captured by a Better Vision. I don't know if it's in the library. Run, flee, do whatever it takes. Take drastic action. And if you're dating and you've already been tempted to cross those physical boundaries with the boyfriend or the girlfriend, take drastic action. Stop. Talk about it. Set the ba- redraw the boundaries again. Boundaries like never sleep in the same house with your boyfriend or girlfriend, or worse, living to live together. Never go into each other's bedrooms. Never go on holidays together and then share a hotel room. That's just stupidity, isn't it? Don't engage in lingering kisses and touches that are just going to arouse the other person to temptation. How foolish to do that kind of thing and to think that nothing will ever happen. Because the way God has made us is that unless our hormones are checked, we will crave for more and we will crave for more and we will take another step and we will take another step until we cross the line and we will live with regrets, especially in the case when we end up breaking up. And every sexual experience we have from that point on will be tainted by the memories of the first. And if you're married and you feel yourself being drawn emotionally or physically to another person who's not your spouse, take drastic action. Stop messaging them or purposely bumping into them. Stop fantasizing about them. Concentrate your thoughts on your spouse because your hormones are such that it's very possible to love your wife or your husband and fall in love with someone else at the same time. Adultery happens. Divorce happens. And it will destroy your life. Flee. Run away. Don't think, oh, it'll it'll never be me. It'll be those other people over there. Listen to Paul's advice, 1 Corinthians 10. Next slide. Therefore, if anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. You see, if you think you're not possible of crossing the line, or getting addicted to porn, or worse, then you're in the greatest danger. There's a way out, we're told. But you have to take it. You have to flee. We are spiritually united with Jesus. His spirit dwells within us. Flee. Look at verse 18 again. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. It's amazing truth for us as Christians. If we are Christian, God the Almighty has taken up residence in our hearts. We are a temple for the Holy Spirit. Just imagine that. What a thought. What a privilege. But just ponder it a bit more. 
Go back to the Old Testament where God's people were forbidden from entering his presence, where any stain or defect would make them unclean. And if they entered into his presence as a sinful human being, they would be struck down dead immediately. But the holy, righteous God of the universe sent his son into the world to take us out of our slavery to sin and death and to pour out his spirit upon us so that he takes up residence in our hearts individually, that we individually and together might fulfill everything that the temple stood for, holy and with God, God dwelling in our midst, ruling and directing our lives. And if that is true, how can we go on living in lust and sin? How can we go on ignoring his design for marriage. He wants us to be who we are, a holy temple that glorifies him. Well, brings us to point three. Drastic action is required. Uh, Jesus referred to this in Matthew chapter five. It's on the screen. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus is saying here that, uh, go back, uh, Jesus is saying that adultery is not just the act of getting into bed with another person. As we start undressing them in our minds, it's as if we've done the act. Now I suspect as we've pondered these things, whether it's our thoughts or whether it's our deeds, I have no doubt that every one of us here tonight feels immensely guilty, myself included. All of us are sexual sinners, and all of us have failed to be pure in our thoughts and our actions. All of us have thought, said, and done things that we would be ashamed if the other people around us knew what we had done. But these things matter to God. Our bodies matter to him. He wants our lives to showcase to the world his love and his faithfulness. He wants us to take drastic action here to change. And Jesus warns us here that perseverance in sexual sin, indeed any sin, will lead to judgment in hell. Look how the passage finishes. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. He's saying better to lose a limb, better to lose an eye, than to be enslaved by the flesh and find yourself in hell. Of course, he doesn't mean literally chopping off your hands or your eyes. Please don't do that. He means taking seriously the judgment of God and taking radical action. And so we return to the warning at the beginning of our passage, chapter 6, verse 9. Can you come to chapter 6, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians? Paul says there, Do you not know? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral nor men who practice homosexuality, uh, sorry, uh, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now Paul is not talking about the person here who's, who's made a desperate mistake for which they are sorry and which they have repented of and turned to Jesus for forgiveness. He's speaking in these verses of the one who embraces the sin as a way of life. And the warning's very strong, isn't it? And very clear. If there is unrepentant sin in my life, a sin I refuse to fight, refuse to renounce, refuse to repent of, then it doesn't matter what I do or say on the outside. It doesn't matter a bit about my church attendance or my ministry. I may not even be a Christian because that thing is my idol. That is my love that I look for, look to for salvation and satisfaction. And we're very graciously warned here by God. Don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. God will not be mocked at the end. So don't buy the lie that it doesn't matter. Be assured that it does. And take it very seriously. I wonder if any of us this evening need to take radical action with our computer or in our relationship or in our marriage. Do we need to start glorifying God with our bodies? Well, the passage ends, though, on a wonderful note of hope, and this is where I want to end. See, we just have to mention those words, you know, purity, pornography, lust, crossing the line. Automatically, we're all feeling absolutely horrible. We feel guilt. We feel it weighing down upon us. We want to desensitize ourselves to its reality, but we never really can. And here the gospel brings wonderful hope to sexual failures like you and me. Look at verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were justified. Uh, well, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See what he's saying? It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. You can be washed. You can be sanctified. You can be justified. It's saying here that Jesus' blood means you can be clean. Sin, and especially sexual sin, often makes us feel dirty. It makes us feel stained. But Jesus' blood means we can be washed of every sin, even serious sexual sin, even repeated sins. Sins even that you've been committing for decades. Sin that makes us feel soiled. There at the cross, Jesus takes all of our sin and all of our guilt on, our, on himself so that we can be washed clean. And Jesus' blood means that we can be sanctified. That means that we're holy, that we're blameless, that we're set apart for him. See, when we sin sexually, we, we might feel unwanted by God or ugly before him. But through Jesus' death, we're assured, we're purified. We're set apart as his special 
child. And Jesus' blood means that we can be justified. That means that we are not guilty. And perhaps we've committed some sin that we wonder whether it could ever be forgiven. But here we're told that at the cross, not only does Jesus take the punishment that we deserve for that sin, but he declares us righteous. As if we never sinned. He gives us a fresh start and a clean slate. That is the promise of the gospel. It's God's promise to you this evening. Perhaps you think, you've no idea what I've done or what was done to me. God could never accept me. But no matter what sexual sin lies in our past, we can go to the cross and we can find there the joy of our sins forgiven. We will find there a loving Lord who will embrace us, a Lord in whom we find acceptance and freedom. Because we've been bought at a price. The precious blood of our Lord Jesus was spilled for us that we might be washed and sanctified and justified. And it's real. And it's true. And so in response to that, we can commit ourselves to living out this new identity that God has given us in singleness, turning from our lust and living in pure purity and celibacy. And in dating, we can now not cross those boundaries anymore. And in marriage, we can start serving our spouse in every way and never giving our affections to another. Uh, John uh, Chapman uh, uses a marvellous illustration for this in his book, A Sinner's Guide to Holiness. And he gets you to imagine a, uh, a wedding day. We had a wedding recently for John and Joe, and you imagine you know, all the flowers and all the dresses and all the, uh, all the spectacular things. That, that's what a wedding day should be like. And then he wants you to imagine another wedding day where the bride comes in and everyone's in shock because she hasn't done her hair and it looked like she rolled in the mud before she came in the door. I mean, that's quite unthinkable. That would be a very interesting wedding to attend, wouldn't it? Because at every wedding, the bride will be spotless and blameless. They won't come in rolling in the mud, will they? They will wake up at the break of dawn to prepare themselves to be as holy and as beautiful as they possibly could be. And the Bible tells us if we are Christians, we've been chosen to be his bride. He will walk us down the aisle. He invites us into the most glorious and intimate of unions. He's given his spirit to live within us. And one day he will bring us home to be married to him. He will bring us home. Revelation pictures this in the most beautiful way. Hallelujah. The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Notice God gives us the precious linen. He washes and purifies, etc. But he has given us good works to do including honouring him with our body. Hebrews says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see 
the Lord. He reminds us of Esau who traded heavenly glories for a single meal. And he reminds us not to follow in his footsteps. Not to choose sexual temptation for its temporary pleasure and give up this glorious heavenly marriage that can be ours. I've been told many a time that the two fastest roads to hell are money and sex. Uh, one person who was very influential in bringing me to church uh, in high school ended up abandoning Christ for same-sex marriage. And another person whom I served with in Sunday school and also my uh, university CF uh, abandoned her faith to start sleeping with her non-Christian boyfriend. It was so sad. It was so tragic even today. And God offers so much more. His design for sex is so beautiful and so pure and so fulfilling and so delightful. He wants us to enjoy it and so point to all that marriage is for. Don't settle for less. Don't be deceived. Flee sexual immorality. And glorify God with your body. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we stand before you uh, in our shame and our guilt. And we know our hearts are exposed before you with all the lust and all of the wrong things that we have done. And Lord, we thank you that at the cross we find forgiveness. We thank you that you can take sinners like us and make us pure and make us righteous and make us your bride. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help each one who is currently in the throes of sexual sin to repent and turn to Christ and embrace this forgiveness. We pray that you would help each one of us to strive for holiness and to glorify you with our bodies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.